Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Sunday, the Israeli parliament will hold a vote of confidence on a newly formed government. A move which, if successful will unseat the country's longest-serving leader, Benjamin Netanyahu. But this isn't the first time his position has been under threat. He's a brilliant political leader. He knows how to stay in power. With a slew of corruption cases mounting against him, how has Netanyahu managed to stay in power for so long? He created an impression that the entire world is against us. And then to credit for it when it was discovered that, lo and behold, the world isn't against us, he made Israelis feel dependent on him. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is this Netanyahu's last stand? Israel does look set for a dramatic change, with Benjamin Netanyahu, the man who's dominated its political scene and foreign relations for over a decade, pushed into opposition. Yair Lapid, Naftali Bennett and Mansour Abbas, they are the new faces of Israel's top leadership. And that government will have the widest possible range of ideologies spanning the entire spectrum from left to right, the only sweet spot being their shared desire to topple Mr. Netanyahu. Last week, a photo of three smiling men shook the world. It went viral on social media and featured in newspapers and on TV channels all over the globe. It showed three middle-aged Israeli men smiling around a coffee table, leaning in towards each other to make sure they're all in frame. It looked like a reunion of old friends, But even a few weeks ago, this picture would have seemed impossible. For among the three, one man is an Islamist Arab and another a right-wing Jew. The only thing bringing them together was a desire to unseat the country's prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. This picture is the signing of the coalition agreement. Gil Hoffman is the chief political correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. We in Israel have been trying to get a government formed for two and a half years. And during this entire time, we've had a political deadlock because a majority of the people in Israel agree with Netanyahu's policies 
but a majority of the people in Israel do not want him to continue as prime minister. And there has been, over the last few months, an effort to bring him down using new ways. One of the ways of doing that was to bring a cross-section of Israeli society together from the relatively far right to the far left, including an Israeli Arab party for the first time. When you had Yair Lapid, who's a centrist, and Naftali Bennett, who's right wing, and Mansour Abbas, who's the leader of the Islamist Ra'am United Arab List, together signing this document, their feeling was, okay, maybe it's finally happening. It's saying that unity and togetherness among Israelis' very disparate realities doesn't have to wait anymore. It's a sign of hope. And and just for people who, who haven't followed Israeli politics, could you spell out how unlikely an alliance this is? How, how broad a spectrum is this? This is as broad a spectrum as there is in Israeli society on every issue imaginable. Yeah, and Naftali Bennett was the head of the Council of Settlers. And here he is with an Arab party. Yair Lapid's party is very proud of having two openly gay representatives. And uh, Mansour Abbas's party is very strongly against recognizing gays existing. Um, and so bringing this far spectrum together, it's almost unthinkable. Tell me about why. I mean, these, these three men who at no other time and in no other context would be agreeing a deal together. The one thing that seems to unite them is is a hatred of, of Benjamin Netanyahu, of Bibi, as he's known. Why is that? Why does he evoke such a reaction? So first of all, just to be careful, Abbas doesn't hate Bibi. Netanyahu built up Abbas as a legitimate player in the Israeli political scene. And Abbas has made a decision to bring his party into an Israeli government, no matter how right-wing it is. But your question is about how hatred of Bibi can unite people with very different views. Netanyahu has been around now 12 years in a row and three years before as prime minister. It's 15 years in a country that's only 73 years old. So during that time when you're in power for so long, of course, it's natural that you gain enemies. That's true with anyone, but Netanyahu more so, because Netanyahu has never permitted there to be any kind of leadership under him out of a fear that they will undermine him, a rather justified fear at times. Uh, And just because uh, you think someone's following you, it doesn't mean you're crazy. You alienate enough people, eventually they're going to bring you down. And just to be clear, has he alienated people within politics, so he's made a lot of political enemies, or do the people of Israel, are, are they turning against him too? Is this a broader feeling? They're against his personality. They're against him breaking promises. You've got the Marie Antoinette factor of just hedonism out of control. You know, he, he, he doesn't have his own credit card even. He doesn't even know how to use a smartphone. Everything has to be done for him. His wife got in trouble for even taking the money that there is from recycling used bottles and using it for a petty cash fund inside her uh, fiefdom. So the people of Israel are sick of that behavior. But I have to stress, they're not sick of his policies. They're not sick of his uh, leadership. 
he's been very successful in bringing down COVID-19. There, while we're taping this, there are fewer than 200 people in Israel with COVID-19. It's not his policies, it's his personality. This new coalition feels like it's been years in the making. In the last two years alone, there have been four elections held in Israel. With no decisive results, they've allowed Netanyahu to cling on to power for just a little longer. So it hasn't been an easy time to cover politics in Israel. I'll take you back to December 24th of 2018. That day... The proceedings of the parliament were supposed to end early uh, in honor of Christmas. We have Christian members of parliament, and our speaker of the parliament at the time decided that in honor of them, he would let us all go home early, which was very nice, and I was looking forward to it. He forgot, though, that all the Christians in the parliament are Orthodox and therefore don't celebrate Christmas in December. They celebrate it in January, but another story. But the thought was there. (laughs) little mistake. But that day, Netanyahu announced he was moving up our next election, which was supposed to be held in November of the following year. He was moving it to April and would be disbanded. Netanyahu brought that election forward in order to preempt developments in the court cases he faced, which accuse him of corruption. And so that day, I went to the gym here in the parliament And I said to the trainer, Anatoly, that just like past elections, during an election, I work too hard. I won't be able to make it here to the gym. I'll see you in April. And little did I know when I said this, that I was referring to April 2021 and not April of uh, 2019. Uh, I indeed returned only after four elections and the pandemic. That's how intense it's been. I mean, why has it been so hard to get an outright majority for for any party. Why do, do new elections keep being called? They were not able to unite around an alternative to Netanyahu. Netanyahu would never budge as leader of his Likud and as leader of the Israeli right. People were still voting with the Shakespearean cliche of to be or not to be. <laughs> it's sad, but that has been the only issue over the last four elections. It hasn't been about security. It hasn't been about corruption or Netanyahu would have lost a long time ago. And it certainly hasn't been about the Palestinians who have not been mentioned in any of the four elections. So, yes, we've had very personal, very shallow elections. I mean, to people outside Israel, that does sound remarkable. The idea that it's not even sort of policies towards Palestinians that are determining votes. It's very much about the character of one man. Did the recent violence in Gaza make a difference? Did it Did it almost prop him up no. for a little while? No, no. The people of Israel, what would you would expect there to be a rally around the flag effect, around the leader. That's happened whenever Israel has gone to war, happens when the United States has gone to war. It didn't happen with Netanyahu because people's minds about him are so made up that he can fix a pandemic, it won't help him. And he can as Donald Trump said, uh, shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and it won't hurt him either. People's minds are made up. People are on one extreme or the other. They either love him or hate him. So tell us about the man, the character that has determined so much in Israeli politics for such a long time. How has he managed to dominate the political scene for so long? He made Israelis feel that he and only he can keep them secure. He built up Iran as 
a legitimate threat of annihilation and its tentacles, to use his word, of Hamas and Gaza and Hezbollah and Lebanon. He created an impression that the entire world is against us and then took credit for it when it was discovered that, lo and behold, the world isn't against us. He made Israelis feel dependent on him. Also economically, we had less than 5% unemployment before the pandemic. It's a very formidable accomplishment. And so if the economy is going well and security is going well, and diplomatically, the relationship with Donald Trump that was so positive, what's there to vote against other than him? Tell us a bit about his background, because in a way, he he was an unlikely politician. Tell us how he became prime minister. Netanyahu's parents were raised in an atmosphere of the Israeli left dominating Israeli society to the extent that if you were known to have right-wing views, you couldn't be advanced in any of the elite professions. And his father was a professor. He was an expert on Spain. And his father could not find work. And so the family kept on having to go back to America where his father taught at prestigious universities. He was raised with an American mentality in America in the 70s and then the 80s, very capitalist America that he's his mindset is still very much in and he never left. Netanyahu was supposed to become a businessman in America, but it was the death of his older brother Yoni in 1976 that propelled him into politics. When his brother got killed as the commander of an operation trying to free hostages on a hijacked plane, he went from being the brother who was the second brother who could just stay in America and make money to being the one who had to be the leader, who had to be the one who would change Israeli society and make up for the domination of those left-wing elites that made his father so resentful. So he built himself up as this security expert, as this expert on terror, and he also became this brilliant spokesman, this orator for Israel who defended Israel in the international media, which is seen as being extremely important to Israel. It's fighting for its existence, on, not only on the, on the military battlefield, but on the airwaves. One of the things that I think is unique about Israel, in terms of all America's allies, is that it is perhaps the only one who has taken care of itself so far. And I would think that America, in fact, it's not a one-way street, Israel taking from the United States. Israel is giving the United States an extraordinary bargain in the Middle East. It's the one stable democratic ally which the United States can count on. That's a 28-year-old Netanyahu in 1978 on an American talk show. And that having these characteristics that he could do better than anybody else, that's what made him shine above the other potentially could leaders and take over from the old guard and pretty much stay there. I mean, in a way, that sort of explains how he's managed to reshape the mindset of Israeli society and sort of lead to more of a lurch towards the right. I mean, tell us a bit about his policies. As you say, even if his personality isn't popular, his policies still are. What does he represent? Netanyahu has a very different image in Israel than he does in the rest of the world. Around the world, he's seen as this very right-wing leader who eats Palestinians for breakfast. In Israel, he's seen as not so right-wing, obviously not left-wing. That's what makes sense for him politically. I mean, keep in mind, he built up this image as being the person who fights terror, 
yet he hasn't overthrown Hamas in Gaza. He's been actually very careful, conservative yeah, when it comes to military battles, very reluctant to uh, do anything risky. He made a career of speaking out against prisoner exchanges. He left his post as Israel's ambassador to the UN. That was his excuse for entering politics and leaving diplomacy that Israel made a deal releasing Palestinian terrorists from prison. Well, since then, he has released more terrorists from prison than any human being in the history of mankind. Think about that. He opposed a Palestinian state. He took more steps to create one than any previous Israeli leader. He's in favor of building in the West Bank, though he has he's the only Israeli leader who ever froze construction completely in order to appease Barack Obama. So there, there's many contradictions when it comes to the policies of And Why is that? I mean, what do you think he actually believes? No one knows what he really believes. And what is it that influences his decisions then? What is it that sort of makes him, you know, completely change course? He's a brilliant political leader. He knows how to stay in power. I can take you to other issues too. Matters of religion and state. He has this alliance with the ultra-Orthodox. He doesn't keep kosher. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He was not married to his wife when his child was conceived. There's a lot of things that he does that are very, very not observant Jewish. And he has this alliance now for 20 years with the ultra-Orthodox that kept him in power. Tell me about, you mentioned it earlier, but tell me about the corruption charges, because that's one of the things that seems to loom large in the background whenever people think of Netanyahu. There's always a spate of court cases that are going on, rumbling along in the background. Tell me about those and how much of an impact they have on Israeli voters. Israel's Attorney General has indicted the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, on multiple corruption charges. The man they call the King of Israel arrived in court for the start of an historic day for this country, a sitting prime minister on trial for corruption. Netanyahu has been accused of fraud, bribery and breach of trust in three different cases. You have the expensive gift affair in which Netanyahu is accused of receiving very expensive gifts from a billionaire who he helped. You've got the newspaper collusion affair in which uh, Netanyahu helped a different billionaire in trying to dominate the Israeli news scene in return for positive coverage. Then you've got a third case that also involves media outlets where he helped one billionaire control the cable company and the phone company together when you weren't allowed to control two mega companies in return for positive news coverage on a news website that he also owned. Those cases, media bribery is this questionable offense, and whether you can receive gifts is a questionable offense. But it, it is part of this atmosphere of thinking that he could get away with anything. His response to this new coalition has been interesting. He seems to be going down the, the Trump line of accusing it of being the biggest fraud in democratic history. He's clearly not going quietly. On the verge of losing his record-long grip on power, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday lashed out at his perceived political opponents. We are witnessing the greatest election fraud in the history of the country, in my opinion, in the history of any democracy. 
Tell me about that. No one thought he would go quietly. He needs to build up his base and make it angrier. And that's what he's doing to the point that the head of the Shin Bet security service had to warn against it because we had a prime minister assassinated in 1995 when, when the opposition leader was Netanyahu. So um, he's treading a very fine line between what is freedom of expression and, and what is legitimate outrage at what he uh, calls a fraudulent decision, which is in the end uh, politics. In a moment, we'll hear more about the three men united in their desire to take down Netanyahu. Hi, this is Tom Whipple, and I'm the science editor at The Times. Thank you for listening. By doing so, you enable me to keep pace with the rapidly changing developments in the coronavirus pandemic and more. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one free month. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Most people talk about us and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Benjamin Netanyahu's 12-year grip on power could be coming to an end on Sunday with a vote of confidence in the new coalition. So who is Naftali Bennett, the man who looks set to replace him? Naftali Bennett grew up in a home of hippies who uh, were protesters against the Vietnam War in San Francisco and then got turned on to Zionism after the, what was seen as miraculous victories by Israel in the Six-Day War in 1967. And uh, they came to Israel and started raising their kids here, but ended up having to go to America a couple times, just like what happened with Netanyahu's parents. So Naftali Bennett liked Netanyahu as a very American mentality. And he grew up interested in, in right-wing politics. His parents became more right-wing over time as well. Remarkably, Bennett and Netanyahu had a lot more than that in common. They actually used to be very close. Bennett is a former protégé of Netanyahu. He worshipped Netanyahu at a certain point. He even named his son Yoni after Netanyahu's brother that got killed in, in action. And then he got connected 
through mutual friends to Netanyahu and who became his chief of staff and uh, then the leader of the Settlers Council and, and then decided to enter politics with a party called Bayadudi, which is a religious Zionist party. And one night where he, there was a debate in Jerusalem among the three candidates for leader of that party, I talked to him afterward for more than an hour outside the building in the cool Jerusalem air in August. So that night, Bennett starts asking me about Yair Lapid, he, who had just entered politics three weeks earlier. What kind of guy is he? Have you gotten to know him? And I said, yes, I spent a few hours talking to him in his this man cave with boxing gloves. He worships Muhammad Ali. And Bennett said, can I have Yair Lapid's phone number? And I said, sure. And that is what led to a bond between them in the following election in 2013 and also to the new government being formed right now as we speak. So, Gil, you were really there for the, for the very beginning of the unlikely coalition. I, I brought them together whether they remember or not. Well, t- tell us about Bennett, because, you know, as, as you say, he was chief of staff to Netanyahu. Did they fall out? How has that rift ended up where it is now? So Bennett, as a recent high-tech millionaire, had no need for money. He was taking this job out of idealism. He was brought into this job by Yelich Shaked, who was Netanyahu's uh, bureau chief. They both were paid for their expenses in driving to Jerusalem from an hour, hour and a half away where they lived. They were paid out of Netanyahu's pocket because he didn't have so many jobs to give out as the leader of the opposition. And Sarah Netanyahu found out that he was doing this, and he was spending their money on these two aides. And she became livid and screamed at them. You're taking food out of the mouth of my children. And they had a terrible falling out. And since then, until about two months ago, neither of them was allowed in the prime minister's residence in Jerusalem. Wow. So a lot of this is very personal. What do we know about his beliefs? Um, I mean, he's, he's known to be more right-wing than even Netanyahu. Obviously, he's going to be limited now by a coalition, but what would his ideal policies be? He would like to annex all the, the Jewish communities over the pre-67 border, certainly the ones needed for security reasons. Uh, even briefly lived in a community called Beit Aryeh that is over the Green Line. That's land Israel captured in the 1967 war. It includes the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and the settlements Bennett supports in those areas are considered by the international community to be illegal. Here he is on the BBC in 2014 when the Obama administration ordered a settlement freeze. Will you accept the concept of a construction freeze as part of Kerry's framework for moving this two-state peace deal forward? No, of course not. Uh, Why should I stop building in my land? It's my own. So what does that mean for the new government's policies? No annexation is going to take place as part of this unity government where you have left wing and right wing together. The left isn't going to get to give up any land. The right isn't going to get to annex any land. You've told us about Netanyahu and about the man who looks set to replace him, Naftali Bennett. But just as big a figure in this transformative political landscape, I guess, is Yair Lapid. 
Tell us a bit about him. You, you described him earlier rather intriguingly as a, a Muhammad Ali fan. What do we need to know about Lapid? You know, Lapid speaks with a slight British accent in his English. He, he briefly lived in London when his father was the correspondent in London for one of the newspapers here. His father was a Holocaust survivor who built himself up as a journalist, very successful journalist, and then made the change of career into politics and became our justice minister, ran on a platform of that was divisive against the ultra-Orthodox. And meanwhile, Yair grew up as this consensus Israeli figure, was an actor, was a good-looking guy long ago, <laughs> lost it since then, and uh, got into journalism himself, became the anchor of the top news magazine on TV, and then made his own foray into politics after seeing the way his father, his father's political career ended by those under him fighting politically. He created a party in which that was no longer possible. He could control it completely, decide everything, and gradually built himself up to be this alternative to Netanyahu. And the third man in that photograph of this coalition coming together is perhaps the most unusual. He's an elected Arab. Tell us about him. Mansour Abbas is a dentist from a, a northern community that's of only Israeli Arabs. He has built himself up through this Islamist party that has Islamist views of, about everything. They would like Israel to be controlled by the Quran. It's affiliated with, with the Muslim Brotherhood. And yet he has taken up a journey in which he's realized that the time has come to help his own people. Mansour Abbas's party, the United Arab List, would be the first from the country's 21% Arab minority, who are Palestinian by heritage but Israeli by citizenship, to join an Israeli government. It wouldn't have been possible without the signing of the Abraham Accords last year, a peace deal between Israel, the UAE and Bahrain about normalising relations. And he started getting closer to Netanyahu and to the Israeli right. He said we get along with them better anyway than we do with the Israeli left. Being in the pocket of the Israeli left has not helped by people whatsoever over the decades. Let's instead join an Israeli government. And he's going to get a ridiculous amount of money as part of this coalition deal because he really holds the balance of power. He could have gone with either side. And the Israeli Arab citizens are going to be helped tremendously because of Mansour Abbas taking this unconventional step. As you said, you know, even the, the Arabs don't necessarily get on with, with the left. There are tensions all across this coalition. It does seem to be the most unsteady coalition of competing beliefs. Can it last? The answer is uh, yes, because of the glue. And the glue you pointed out that brought them together, which is the hatred of Netanyahu. And there are people who think, oh, well, once you form the government, you ousted Netanyahu you've lost your glue. That's not true. Your glue is there in your face every single moment of every day. Uh, he doesn't go off and retire to uh, some resort the way that Donald Trump did. He will have a formal role. Netanyahu will be the leader of the opposition. 
He will be speaking every day about how bad the government is. As long as you have that glue keeping you together, this government can last. Well, if this coalition does turn into a working government, what will it mean for Israel, you know, in terms of policies? Will, will it change the attitude towards Palestinians, for example? No. Will the attitudes towards settlements change? No. It won't change anything on the diplomatic or security front. You know, the same defense minister that we've had for the last year, Netanyahu was never the one who built so much in settlements. If anything, the Israeli left built them more than the Israeli right. And irony, that could be the subject of another podcast. It's certainly the policies on Iran won't change. Certainly not in Hamas or Hezbollah. We're going to go with status quo for a while here. And just finally, is this the end of Bibi? Can, no. can he fight back? No, uh, this is not the end of Netanyahu. He's a young man. He's only 71. His father died at the age of 102. He could be in politics for another 30 years. And if he passes the uh, abolishing death bill, then he can go on forever. What a thought. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Gil Hoffman, Chief Political Correspondent for The Jerusalem Post. The producers today were Chris Hemmings and Asir Fuchs, The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find the podcast. Thanks for listening, and see you again soon. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.